Hey there, it's Dina. At Click Here, we've always found North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, to be a subject of fascination. Whether it's his decision to set up hacker hotels in China, North Korea's epic cryptocurrency heist, or the nation's launching of ICBMs that, well, aren't exactly as they seem. But North Korea is one of those places we need to understand, whether it's because of its role in the cyber world or its importance to maintaining peace on the Korean peninsula. That's why we wanted to share an episode from a podcast we love, Big Brother, North Korea's Forgotten Prince. It looks into what may be the strangest assassination of the 21st century, and it explores a little-known story about why Kim Jong-un shouldn't be leading North Korea at all. Hosted by Eden Lee, it follows his improbable rise and what that means for us all. Here's the first episode. Have a listen. It's February 13th, 2017, the day before Valentine's Day. Kim Chol is standing inside Kuala Lumpur International Airport, staring up at the departures board. It's busy. Throngs of passengers glide through the airport's spacious hall, making their way from check-in to security. This is Malaysia's biggest and busiest international airport. On a usual day, nearly 160,000 passengers travel through here. At 9 in the morning, Kim blends into the crowd. He's bald and pudgy, wearing light blue jeans and a gray blazer. A black backpack slung casually around his right shoulder. Kim gazes up at the list of departures and sees that his flight to Macau, his home in the south of China, is on schedule. He begins walking toward the ticketing area. Little does he know, but he is being watched. Kim approaches an Air Asia kiosk. As he enters his flight information, he doesn't notice two young women, both thin, with dark hair, slowly creeping up behind him. Suddenly, a pair of hands clasp around Kim's face from behind. It's as if someone is trying to surprise him, like a game of guess who. But instead, the woman wipes her hands across his cheeks, pressing her palms firmly against his eyes, his nose, his mouth. Kim jerks his head away. Just as the first woman releases her grip, the second woman, wearing a T-shirt that says LOL, does the same. She smears her hands all over his face. Kim thrashes his head to break free. The woman yells sorry and scurries away. And then, as quickly as they appeared, they're gone. The women vanish into the crowd. Kim Chol takes a deep breath and tries to collect himself. He checks his belongings. The woman didn't take his bag or ID or nab anything from his pockets. All they did was smear a greasy substance over his eyes and nose. It feels like motor oil. And then it starts to burn. Kim staggers to the closest information desk. His nose starts to run. The pain on his skin intensifies. He explains to an employee that he's been assaulted that two strangers came up behind him and rubbed oil or grease or 
something all over his face. He tries to wipe the grease off, but the stinging is so intense. He can hardly keep his eyes open. Very painful, he explains, taking deeper and deeper breaths. Very painful. The attendant walks Kim to three officials. Through labored breaths, he explains the story again. The attack, the grease, the pain. The officials nod and lead him down a long hallway to the airport clinic. Kim begins to limp and his vision blurs. He groans in pain as his chest, his lungs, his heart tighten like a clamp. Inside the clinic, doctors measure his vitals. The burning becomes relentless. His breathing is rapid and shallow. Somebody snaps a picture of Kim Chul. He's slumped in a chair, his jacket cast off, his pot belly peeking out of his royal blue t-shirt. His eyes are half open, but he's unconscious. At this point, he's barely breathing. Seconds later, medics lay Kim flat on an orange stretcher and strap an oxygen mask over his nose and mouth, squeezing it again and again, trying to force air into his lungs. Soon, he's ferried out to the whine of an ambulance siren. It's the last thing Kim Chol will ever hear. Within 15 minutes, he is dead, and nobody knows why. Hours later, as police review Kim Chol's strange and sudden death, they're left with the most basic and bizarre questions. How did Kim die? Who were these women? What did they smear onto his face? And why, of all people, did they attack him? But it soon became clear that Kim Chol was not your average visitor to Kuala Lumpur International Airport. Discovered inside his backpack is approximately 120,000 American dollars in cash, as well as 12 vials of atropine, a rare antidote that's used to treat deadly chemical attacks. Analysis from a lab also reveals that the substance smeared onto his face was VX nerve agent, one of the deadliest chemical weapons on the planet. Within 24 hours, they learned that Kim Chol was not the man he claimed to be. The name on his passport was just an alias, a cover. The dead man's real name was Kim Jong-nam. And while most people had never heard of him, international experts knew him well. He was North Korean, the firstborn son of the former supreme leader, Kim Jong-il. Years ago, many had considered Kim Jong-nam the frontrunner to the hermit kingdom's throne. And his death? It became clear that this was more than a strange, random accident. It was an assassination an early Valentine's Day present from the North Korean regime. The question is, why? Hi, my name is Eden Lee, and on this podcast, 
we dive into the sad life and strange death of the man who should have inherited North Korea's throne, Kim Jong-nam. Join me as we explore the one-time heir's rise and fall. From Jong-nam's early promise... He should have been the successor. ...to the palace intrigue... There's a lot of cloak and dagger, you know, James Bond stuff around Kim Jong-nam. ...to the power struggles that spelled his doom. Anybody who thinks differently is a threat and needs to be eliminated. This is Big Brother, the rise and fall of North Korea's forgotten prince. Here's the thing you need to know about the brothers Kim. Through the late 90s to the early 2000s, North Korea watchers never considered Kim Jong-un, the current leader, to be much of a threat or even a contender for the throne at all. He was Jong-il's third son. He was unknown throughout his own country. When it came to his father's hereditary title, he stood in the back of the line. At the front, Jong-un's big brother, Kim Jong-nam. Many assume that the family patriarch, Kim Jong-il, was grooming Jong-nam to rule the country, to make him the, quote, great successor. After Jong-nam graduated high school, he had become something of a computer whiz and was awarded a post leading the regime's Ministry of People's Security. The job put Jong-nam in charge of the country's police, prisons, and internment camps. It also made him responsible for gathering intel from North Korea's vast network of informants who surveilled the country's dissenters. In other words, Kim Jong-nam spent his early 20s serving as North Korea's top cop. Kim Jong-nam was part of a cohort of core leadership. That's Michael Madden. I am the founder and director of North Korea Leadership Watch. And as you can tell, his audio is distorted. And that's because he was using a burner phone. I am using a burner phone, so I don't know what, what you know, who's on my phone these days. In fact, his call quality can be so distorted that we've asked a voice actor to read his answers. Kim Jong-nam was part of a cohort core leadership that would go with people from the state security department, secret police. Madden remembers Kim Jong-nam's early days working for the regime. What they would do is... They would do inspections of these economic sites, whether they were farms or industrial factories. They would do these audits, and they would find people who they thought had been deceptive in their reports. And then these people would be publicly executed, and their families sent to labor in central political detention facilities. Essentially, it was Kim Jong-nam's job to make sure people weren't defrauding the regime and, by extension, stealing money from his father. It was an important job and a signal to many that, someday, Jong-nam would be the one to push the big red button. He'd be the guy high-stepping soldiers would salute as they marched through Pyongyang. The palaces, the power, the attention, all destined to be his. And then it fell apart. By the time Kim Jong-il died in 2011, Kim Jong-nam was a pariah an outcast. He hadn't lived in North Korea for more than a decade. 
he'd been exiled to the glittering lights of Macau, which is probably the last place anyone would expect to find a royal member of the Kim dynasty. Macau was, and is, China's capitalist wonderland. The Monte Carlo of the East, it's a modern island oasis filled with flashy skyscrapers and neon lights. It's also the gambling capital of the world, a place crawling with so many high rollers, it hauls in three times as much revenue as Las Vegas. Anna Fifield, a journalist and author of the book The Great Successor, explains why such a city would appeal to the exiled prince. I think Macau was really the perfect place for Kim Jong-nam to be. That's the gambling mecca of Asia. Kim Jong-nam had a reputation of being a playboy, being a bon vivant, loving, you know, going around the place, living the good life. He had one family and children in Beijing, another family uh, in Macau. He apparently had girlfriends all around the place. He knew his wine. Uh, he enjoyed, you know, being a, a rich uh, princeling, living the jet set life, much like a Russian oligarch kid, or, you know, maybe much like a Hilton or a Kardashian or something. According to locals, Kim Jong-nam was often seen hitting the slot machines and betting big on Baccarat, dining at the city's restaurants and boozing it up in high-end whiskey bars. He had a reputation as a heavy spender who was familiar with the back alleys of the world's red light districts and the prostitutes who worked them. It seemed that he loved living the high life, hopping from country to country with a fake Portuguese passport. By the looks of it, Kim Jong-nam was no longer in line to the North Korean throne. He wore jeans and t-shirts and even sported facial hair, fashion choices that would be impossible in his own country. And worse, he used social media. He was posting pictures on his Facebook page, standing standing outside um, various American-owned casino uh, chains there. Online, he kept in touch with classmates from his high school and even liked the page of a comedian who spoofed his younger brother under the stage name Kim Jong-um, with an M. Kim Jong-nam would even exchange emails with journalists and was consistent with his messages. He had no political ambitions and no desire to lead North Korea. He wished his baby half-brother the best. And lastly, he just wanted to live his life with his family and be left alone. Here's the real Kim Jong-nam in his own words. The appointment of a successor is totally my father's decision. So he makes his decision so he doesn't need to talk to me or talk to another person. I think this kind of question you have to ask to my father or to my brother now, mm. not to me. If I can. <laughs> but, uh, I'm sorry you cannot. So I cannot answer this question because I'm not involved in political uh, any uh, affair in North Korea. And that's how it was supposed to be. Just months before Kim Jong-il died, he prepared his will and testament. In it, he gave the future successor, Kim Jong-un, advice on policy and leadership. He also made it clear that the new leader should leave his big brother alone, stating that Kim Jong-nam was not to be, quote, targeted or harassed. But on February 13th, 2017, 
as Kim Jong-nam stared up at the fluorescent lights of an airport hospital clinic, dipping in and out of consciousness for the last time, it became evident that somebody had not honored his father's dying wish. Was Kim Jong-un hunting his brother? If he already had the power, the throne, the honor of being named supreme leader, why chase Kim Jong-nam down to an airport in Malaysia? And why go through such elaborate means to end his life? If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. North Korean leader's half-brother dies in Kuala Lumpur. CCTV footage surfaces showing attack. Kim Jong-un's death was never supposed to be primetime news. About four hours after the so-called Kim Chol died, police reviewed his documents and started making calls. His passport listed his home country as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or DPRK, the official name for North Korea. But detectives made a mistake. Instead of notifying the communist regime of the death, they accidentally contacted the embassy for South Korea. It wasn't long before the National Intelligence Service, kind of like South Korea's CIA, caught on, realizing that the man called Kim Chol was, in fact, the estranged brother of North Korea's ruler. It became clear that the man's death was likely an assassination. That one mistake would change the dynamic of the entire investigation. Shortly after, the South Korean intelligence agency would leak the news to the press And within 24 hours, Kim's death was making international headlines. Journalists like Anna Fifield, who was then reporting for the Washington Post, rushed to Kuala Lumpur. As soon as I heard that Kim Jong-nam had died in Malaysia, I got on the next plane to Kuala Lumpur and immediately went to Terminal 2, the AirAsia budget terminal, which is where it happened. It all looked very normal at that stage. You know, I walked around the kiosk where he was trying to check in for his flight. You know, it took a long time, several days, for the Malaysians to realise that this was a highly toxic chemical agent and actually cordon off this airport and do a thorough deep clean. So it was a kind of surreal situation where you wouldn't have known anything had happened. In the hours following Kim Jong-nam's death, Detectives began poring over airport CCTV camera footage. They closely watched the movements of the two mysterious women who had smeared VX nerve agent across his face. They quickly noticed that these two women were not acting alone. Investigators noticed a Korean man lugging a black suitcase, shadowing Jungnam everywhere he went. 
from the information desk after the assault to the police, and then trailing him to the clinic. Even as Cheongnam was dying, the man lurked nearby, only leaving once the prince was lifeless on a stretcher. Immediately after, the man ducked into a bathroom and re-emerged in a fresh change of clothes. That wasn't the only suspicious character investigators found. There was also a pair of Korean men, both in baseball caps, carrying backpacks. Footage shows them standing next to the two women, minutes before the attack, applying a substance to their hands. Afterwards, both men slip into a bathroom, ditch their backpacks, and change their clothes. One even shaves his goatee. And there's a fourth man. Earlier footage shows him sitting in a coffee shop with one of the female assailants, apparently debriefing her. In the main terminal, all four men check in for a flight. A North Korean airline attendant, plus a diplomat from the North Korean embassy, whisks them through security. Footage shows the men smiling and laughing as they wait in line. Days later, investigators would find their flight itinerary. The four North Koreans who left Kuala Lumpur in a real hurry after that attack on Kim Jong-nam, they went to Jakarta, Dubai, Vladivostok, Pyongyang. They Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. By the time the four nameless North Koreans boarded their flight, Kim Jong-nam's body was still warm. And by the time investigators realized what exactly had happened, the men were already back in the DPRK. Suddenly, the death of Kim Jong-nam was an international crime. And as investigators tried to pinpoint the men's identities and what role they might have played in the assassination, they looked to question anybody who might have come in contact with them. And that's when the investigation started to get, well, messy. Here's the thing you need to know about Malaysia. Until very recently, it maintained close ties with North Korea. The DPRK imported oil and rubber and even noodles from Malaysia, while the islands received steel and iron in return. North Korea's airline, Air Koryo, regularly flew in and out of the country. In fact, high-level North Korean citizens could travel to Malaysia without a visa. And Malaysians could make similar visa-free trips to Pyongyang. Approximately 1,000 North Koreans lived and worked in Malaysia. The country shared such close ties that in 2013, Kim Jong-un received an honorary doctorate from a Malaysian university. This often surprises people. You've probably heard pundits call North Korea a hermit kingdom. The term conjures images of an isolated society in perpetual lockdown, cut off from the rest of the world. And there's some truth to that. For most citizens in North Korea, there is no internet access. Information is tightly controlled. And most North Koreans can't travel freely around their own country, let alone abroad. But a hermit kingdom? They are not a hermit kingdom. That's Jenny Town, 
a senior fellow at the Stimson Center in Washington, D.C. North Korea really has diplomatic relations with about 44 countries, I believe. And they have embassies in several countries as well. I think there is a sense that we're more cut off from them than they are from the world. Indeed, North Korea maintains diplomatic relations with most countries. It has embassies all over the globe, including in liberal democracies such as Spain, Italy, Sweden, Mexico, South Africa, and others. It receives billions of dollars worth of imports from China. Millions from Russia, Brazil, and India, too. There's a lot of business interest. A lot of it comes from Southeast Asia, some from India, especially in terms of the mining sectors. There was at one time a big push in Europe um, looking at uh, North Korea as an outsourcing for IT. There's long-standing history between North Korea and countries, for instance, in Africa, in South America, and especially with countries that have either been dictatorships or part of the communist bloc. And North Korea returns the favor. Each year, it illegally exports millions of dollars of coal. It spent decades exporting missiles and heavy arms to Iran. It even deployed troops to Syria to fortify the regime during its civil war. Countries that are willing to ignore sanctions, these are all wide open um, for the North Koreans. And the North Koreans are very good at identifying and cultivating you know, relationships and, and finding people to work with them as well. And North Korea's net is wide. They've built libraries in Mauritius, sewers in Rwanda, a machete factory in Burundi, and a concrete factory in Somalia. Some sources indicate that they've even exported guns to places like Sweden. If that surprises you, you're not alone. The image of North Korea as a reclusive, closed-off loner of a nation is a caricature, one that leads us to mock, infantilize, and underestimate them as a country. But it's not all that accurate. North Korea has not always been a hermit kingdom, but has actually been an active player on the international stage. That's Dr. Benjamin Young. I'm an assistant professor in Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness at Virginia Commonwealth University. And as he explains, North Korea has been meddling with international affairs for a long time. They achieve this by sending their people and ideas abroad from building statues and palaces in Africa and Southeast Asia to sending military trainers to as far flung as Grenada. In the 1980s, North Korean trainers uh, were sent to Zimbabwe to help Robert Mugabe uh, crack down on dissent. And this was what North Korea was able to do. It had its niches around the world, and one of its niches was brutality. North Korea has hosted foreign soldiers on its own soil, putting Irish revolutionaries through boot camp and teaching Mexican insurgents the art of Taekwondo. The United States maintains that its doors have always been closed to the DPRK, but that's not entirely true. So North Korea actually took out full-page ads in the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Boston Globe, 
North Koreans had paid for these ads, and so they were essentially free to put up whatever they want. Ads aren't the only things to have fallen through the cracks. The waters surrounding North Korea are famous for their seafood, and the country's salmon halls have worked their way into the frozen food aisles of big box stores. There's even evidence that the animation of some major motion pictures have been accidentally outsourced to animators in North Korea. All of this is to say that North Korea isn't the pariah state you might think. And that was especially true in a place like Malaysia. When Kim Jong-nam was killed, movement between the two countries was relatively fluid. This made Malaysia a perfect hub for illicit activities, from illegal arms sales to espionage to money laundering. And it also made Malaysia one of the best places for North Korea's assassins to hide. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. The scene outside the North Korean embassy in Kuala Lumpur is usually serene. The two-story building in the city's western suburbs is a hulking but quiet compound, a seaside McMansion surrounded by a thick concrete fence and swaying palm trees. On February 20th, 2017, the scene outside the embassy was much different. Dozens of journalists crowded the front gate, microphones outstretched, as news outlets from across the globe jockeyed for a scoop. That day, North Korea's ambassador to Malaysia held a news conference and launched a string of denials. He denied that Kim Jong-nam had died of a VX attack. Fainted from the heart attack at the airport. It was a natural death. He denied that North Korea was remotely involved. Now, there are so many rumors spread to the public to defame the image of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. The Malaysian police should bear the full responsibility for that. He even denied that the body belonged to Kim Jong-nam. The embassy has already identified his identity, named Kim Chol. The request for the DNA sample is a preposterous one. 
North Korean diplomats argued that a formal autopsy or any formal identification, like a DNA test, was excessive. They claimed that Malaysian authorities were colluding with South Korean spies trying to, quote, besmirch the image of our republic. At the time, Anna Fifield was on the scene reporting the story. We had the North Korean diplomats um, clearly, I think, unsure of what to do. The ambassador was outside the, um, the embassy gates uh, briefing the media, flatly denying everything that had happened. The North Koreans were, quite frankly, getting sick of the attention. When I went to the North Korean embassy in Kuala Lumpur and went up to the gates there, the North Koreans had removed the, the button from the buzzer on the door so that nobody could ring the doorbell anymore because they were obviously so fed up with pesky journalists coming to ask questions. To which what the embassy officials failed to mention was that two North Koreans, a diplomat and an airline employee who had helped the four mysterious assassins get their flights home, were camped inside the embassy, and they refused to leave. The Malaysian police were desperate to interview the two men. Here's Khalid Abu Bakar, the Inspector General of the Royal Malaysian Police Force. We have requested the embassy, North Korean embassy, to uh, allow us to interview both of them. Uh, we hope that the Korean embassy will cooperate with us, allow us to interview them, interview them quickly. Uh, if not, we will compel them to come to us. But North Korea held its ground. The men refused to leave the embassy. In response, Malaysia refused to give up the body, making the morgue the latest battleground. Journalists outside the uh, hospital morgue waiting to see who would come to identify the body. You know, the North Koreans were insisting that this, you know, North Korean official called Kim Chol, as far as they were saying, be returned to them. And then suddenly this happened. One night after refusing to give up Kim Jong-nam's body, an attempted break-in at the Kuala Lumpur morgue. Tensions flared. Within hours, an armed special operations police unit was stationed outside the mortuary. More media swirled. So there was a lot of talk that uh, his son uh, would come to uh, come to Kuala Lumpur to identify the body, potentially give a DNA match. This was big news. Kim Jong-nam's firstborn son, Kim Hans-hol, lived in Macau, but was relatively unknown and rarely made public appearances. Now the question was, would he really show up in Malaysia? Any young Asian guy with geek chic glasses and, uh, you know, spiky cool hair at Kuala Lumpur that over those few days, you know, suddenly had the international media hounding him. A few days later, it was rumored he came to identify the body, arriving disguised as a special police officer for his safety. But nobody knows if Kim Hans-hol did come. Regardless, police were able to confirm that the dead man truly was Kim Jong-nam. We have now established that Kim Chol is Kim Jong-nam. Uh, we have fulfilled the requ requirement of the 
laws on his identification. A few days later, the North Korean ambassador reappeared to the press and called the identification a sham. The standoff between the North Korean holdouts and the Malaysian police continued. Because one of the suspects was North Korea's second secretary, a diplomatic post, he had diplomatic immunity. And the airline employee remained safe as long as he didn't leave the embassy grounds. In an interview, investigator Khaled Abu Bakar seemed to admit as much. So if you have nothing to hide, if you, you don't have to be afraid. You should, you should, you should cooperate. No arrest warrant will be applied. But as guards and journalists surrounded the embassy, waiting for the persons of interest to make a move, it became increasingly clear that North Korea was not going to flinch. Even Bakar started to sound increasingly desperate. I'm saying it again that the Korean authorities are not cooperating with us in this investigation. If it takes five years, we will wait outside. Definitely somebody will come out, he said. But they didn't. And as the stalemate stretched into weeks, the DPRK made a decision. If the North Koreans holed up in the embassy weren't allowed to freely leave, then all Malaysians in North Korea would be trapped too. The North Koreans uh, took all of the Malaysians in Pyongyang, and the Malaysian diplomats and their families essentially put them under embassy arrest and wouldn't allow them to leave uh, North Korea until the North Korean nationals in Malaysia had been allowed to leave. Hostage diplomacy, one of North Korea's great tricks. Suddenly, it became clear that North Korea and Malaysia weren't just fighting over a dead body. They were sprinting headfirst into a diplomatic crisis of international proportions, one that would entangle six foreign countries and three nuclear powers, the United States included. Meanwhile, remember those women who smeared Kim Jong-nam's face with VX nerve agent? As all of this drama was unfolding, they were both sitting in a Malaysian prison cell. Unlike everybody else involved, they weren't spies. They weren't diplomats. They weren't even North Korean. They were sex workers. And they had been caught within days of Kim Jong-nam's death. And as they sat behind bars, they both kept asking police the same questions. Is this part of the prank? I was told I was on a prank game show. The story that unfolds would reveal a bizarre murder plot with murky intent. That is, unless you understand North Korea's motives. In North Korea, as in the mob perhaps, it's business, it's not personal. When somebody challenges you, that challenger must be eliminated. He's sending a message, you know, anyone, anywhere in the world, I can get you and it will hurt. If you have the attention of the world and the world will listen to you, then yes, North Korea is going to hunt you down. I'm Eden Lee. Join me next time as we unravel the most audacious political assassination of the 21st century and try to understand the strange logic behind North Korea's policies paranoia, and the reasons Kim Jong-nam was a marked man. Big Brother is a production of School of Humans and iHeartRadio and hosted by me, Eden Lee. 
Lucas Riley is our writer, co-director, and associate producer. Amelia Brock is our senior producer, co-director, and editor. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Our fact checker is Aaron Blakemore. Music composed by Jason Todd Shannon and Tune Wilders. Original score mix by Vic Stafford. Audio editing by Jesse Nyswanger. Sound design and mix by Harper W. Harris. Audio correction by Josh Fisher. Voice acting by Mark Chung, Daniel Kim, Judy Alice Lee, Sean McKee, Mike Coscarelli, and KT Wong. Special thanks to Ryan Murdoch and Will Pearson. We'd like to acknowledge the work of Ryan White, Jessica Hargrave, and Doug Bob Clark. Sound license from the Associated Press, The Star Malaysia, Ajan France Press, Reuters, and Kini TV. If you're enjoying the podcast, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. This has been an episode from Big Brother, North Korea's Forgotten Prince. It's produced by School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. You can listen to the full series wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here. We'll have some new Click Here episodes for you in January. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.